I haven't mowed my lawn in quite a while. I, it, it's mowed. I personally have not mowed my lawn in a while. I, I, I pay people to do it. Don't, don't judge me. But uh, I remember when I would mow the lawn, I'd have to like prime the, uh, prime the engine a bit. Isn't that what it, you, you gotta press that little thing and it prime, you know, pushes in order to get the job done. And, and I feel music team, that's what you did this morning. You, uh, you, you brought it with, 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 with the, uh, with the songs this morning. Those, those are good songs. It sets the stage, sets the stage well. Thank you for ministering to us and to me uh, that way this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 20. This morning we are in verses 27 through through 40. And as you do, uh, as you do so, I want you to consider all the things you've done this past week. I want you to consider all the pursuits. All the goals, all the strategies, all the desires, all the ambitions, all the definitions that you've had this week of success. What would have made it a good week? What would have made it a bad week? What would have made it the best week ever? What would have made it the worst week ever? What did that look like? Maybe it's financial. Maybe you've been overly fixated on finances this week. Maybe you've been overly fixated on work or even church and ministry. What is the best week in the entire world look like to you and why? What is your true definition of success? If something was snatched from you, what would be the thing that that would bring the whole tower down, the whole kingdom down, your whole sense of joy and, and peace. And what, what would it be? Remove that thing from your life and, and all joy is gone, all hope is gone, all peace is gone. For some of you, it would be money. For some of you, it would be your spouse, your family, your kids. Some of you would be this church, ministry. Some of you would be a car, your reputation. I know what it was for the Apostle Paul. He tells us. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he's saying there, in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, is this, you can take it all. Just don't take the resurrection. And friends, I, I must confess I've thought about the resurrection quite a bit this week. But if I wasn't preparing for this sermon and this text, I probably wouldn't have thought about the resurrection that much. I mean, did many of you this week? Was the resurrection of the dead, the day when, when, when we will all be with Christ, with, with new bodies, and, and we will be with Him forever and ever and ever and ever, 
Has, has that thought, that reality, that, that reality, that day, that moment, has that been on your heart this week? Even once. Well, for Paul, for Paul, it was his awe-consuming thought. It's what spurred him on. And friends, it is what should spur us on as well. My main point this morning is this. It's simple. Those who are in Christ can set their hopes on the resurrection where we will live with God for all of eternity. Those who are in Christ can set their hopes on the resurrection where we will live with God for all of eternity. I was telling Stephen this morning, I'm just glad to not preach another sermon on hypocrisy. <laughs> I feel like that's all I've preached on for like the past few months. So, yeah, I'm glad we're, this morning, I pray that you're encouraged this morning. If you have your Bibles, again, turn to Luke chapter 20. I'm going to read through uh, verses 27 through 40. Please follow along as I read. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left, no children, and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Then Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Main point this morning, only point this morning, is this. Those who are in Christ can set their hopes on the resurrection where we will live with God for all of eternity. That's it. So far, church in chapter 20, we've seen the chief priests and the scribes try to discredit Jesus as a blasphemer. But Jesus shut them down. Then the Pharisees, scribes, and chief priests tried to discredit Jesus before the people as a Rome sympathizer or before Rome as an insurrectionist. But Jesus shut them down. Today we come to a very interesting passage of Scripture. A little over 20 chapters in to the book of Luke, Dr. Luke finally introduces us to one of the other religious sects in ancient Israel, the beloved Sadducees. While we are introduced to new religious leaders in this text, it is essentially the same story and the same song. The Sadducees will attempt to discredit Jesus, but friends, Jesus will shut them down. After this interaction, they get to the point and stop asking Jesus questions. 
That's the result. And so as we begin in verse 27 this morning, as we're introduced to the Sadducees, Luke provides a very pertinent detail that was one of the most distinguishing characteristics of the Sadducees. It is this. They did not believe in the resurrection. Like Paul would say, these are the type of people that are to be pitied most. They, they did not believe in the resurrection. Not only that, but if it, you don't have to turn there, but you can maybe make a note. In, in Acts 23, verse 8, it, it says this. Not only that they didn't believe in the resurrection, but the Sadducees say that there was no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. This is, import, this, is a, this is an important piece of information because the Jews in general, they did believe in the resurrection. A common belief in that time was that, that, that there was a resurrection. The idea that there was no resurrection, no angels, and, and, and no spirit was so completely contrary to the Jews of that time. That was a very common belief. For instance, in Acts 23, in the midst of the Apostle Paul standing trial before the Jewish council, we see a fairly public and important debate taking place between the Pharisees and Sadducees regarding the issue of the resurrection. The Pharisees were strong believers in angels, spirits, and the resurrection. As already, as already stated, the Sadducees rejected such notions. However, what's, what's interesting, church, in, in Acts 23, is that the discussion surrounding the issue of the resurrection, it actually became violent. Now, we, we've, we've had discussions in church, like with, with the men, we get together, and we've had small group discussions, we've had one-on-one -on -one discussions, and maybe they aren't always so friendly at, the, at times, but they usually always end with, 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 with unity. Well, here in Acts 23, about this discussion uh, for, of, about the resurrection, it turns violent. It became so violent that the tribune had to remove Paul from the trial because they were afraid Paul was going to get killed right then and there. Needless to say, this was a theological conviction that the Sadducees held very, very dearly. Now you might ask, if this was such a minority view in Israel, surely it didn't have any social or, or, or religious significance, right? Wrong. While the Sadducees were small in number, they were actually extremely influential in Israel. The Sadducees were extremely tied to the, to the priesthood. And we know that the priest worked in the temple and how important the temple was in Israel. So one can imagine how great of an influence the Sadducees actually had on the religious life in Israel. Because they were closely tied to the they were closely associated with the, with the priestly class, the Sadducees were wealthy. And they were highly educated. Friends, these gentlemen were not intellectual slouches. They were wealthy. They were smart. They were influential. They were powerful. Not only were these men wealthy, intelligent, and influential, they were book, chapter, verse guys. They were, they were scripture guys. At least they claimed to be. Unlike the Pharisees, who were most concerned with the oral law and its traditions, the Sadducees rejected the oral law and traditions altogether. They only believed the scriptures were authoritative and binding. And so, of course, we would say, Amen. These were, these were scripture guys. However, you might be asking, how can these guys be all about the scriptures and reject the resurrection? It doesn't make sense. 
For instance, if they were Scripture alone people, surely they would have read Daniel 12, 1 through 2, that clearly says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never uh, uh, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's just one example among many that you'll find all throughout the Old Testament. How, how can one read that and not come away understanding that there will be a resurrection of the dead? If these guys are scripture people, they would go to the scriptures and they would see that clearly. Well, the final relevant fact concerning the Sadducees is that they did not believe in the authority of the whole Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, also known as the Torah. In their view, they did not believe that the Torah spoke explicitly of resurrection, spirits, or angels. Therefore, they did not believe it and fought adamantly against such notions. This issue was their soapbox issue. We must understand that about, about the Sadducees. Now that we've considered a bit of the context surrounding the Sadducees, let's look at how these Sadducees seek to discredit Jesus. Because they believed they had ample reason to deny the resurrection, the Sadducees attempted to discredit Jesus as a theologian by presenting Jesus with a straw man argument that argued against the resurrection. Their straw man argument was based upon an application found in Deuteronomy 25. If Jesus couldn't support the mainstream and biblical notion of the resurrection, most of the crowds at that point would have turned against Jesus. The Sadducees, they begin their trap by setting up a scenario where a woman had effectively been married to seven different biological brothers. It wasn't that this woman couldn't ever stay married. It's not that she just kept getting divorced and she she was married seven. that's, That's not what happened. However, her her husbands kept dying and left her a widow. With each marriage, they they tried to have children, but were never blessed with children. The reason she kept marrying different brothers in the family was because of a provision found in in Deuteronomy chapter 25. In Deuteronomy 20, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. In Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, we read, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. We understand? Now God had a specific plan in giving this law to Israel. He had a a specific plan here. We must understand that throughout the book of Genesis and Exodus, God was concerned with his covenant people Israel being physically multiplied throughout the land. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful. After Noah gets off the ark, God tells Noah and his family to be fruitful and to multiply. Later in Genesis, God tells Abraham that God will make his descendants outnumber the dust of the earth. We see a a highlight of God's abundant multiplication of the Israelites when they are enslaved in Egypt in 
in Exodus chapter 1, which ultimately led to, to Pharaoh's desire to, and plot to, to kill Jewish sons. And ultimately, God desired to bring glory to himself by increasing the population of the Jews, and penultimately, by bringing the Messiah from the Jewish seed. Laws such as Deuteronomy 25, 5-6 helped God's chosen people fulfill his desire. They were to marry and bear children with ethnic Jews or Jewish proselytes. If a man died and left his wife widowed without offspring, it was the job of his brother to marry her and attempt to give her a child in order to continue the family name and Jewish lineage to the glory of God. But back in Luke 20 again, there's a lot of context here, but stay with me. Back in Luke 20 again, we see the Sadducees give, give an extreme example of this, an extreme application of, of, of Deuteronomy 25. What would happen if a woman went through the process rooted in Deuteronomy 25 a total of seven times? That's what he's asking. What if this happened seven times? It's an extreme, an extreme scenario. How could this actually happen? She marries, she gets married seven times, all these husbands die, and none of them ever bear her any children. None of them. More specifically, how would such a woman's earthly reality affect her, her for eternity future? Who would be her husband at the resurrection? Uh, for instance, they were all legally married on earth. They all experienced marital intimacy. So when they're all reunited at the great big party in the sky, so the Sadducees thought, will all the brothers battle it out for her hand? Who indeed would be her husband? That's what they're asking. And so the Sadducees, they probably felt quite smug after they brought this question to Jesus. This likely wasn't the first time they asked such a question in public. It was their gotcha question. It was their gotcha question to, to try and disprove the resurrection. It was their version of, can God build a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? So you've heard that question. To answer that question in the affirmative is to affirm that it's possible for there to be something more powerful than God. To answer in the negative is to affirm that God is not all-powerful. To ask such a question, though, it misses one key point. Is this, that God is all-powerful and can do whatever he pleases and would never use his power for such silly reasons that don't bring him glory. Similarly, the Sadducees' question regarding marriage and the resurrection missed the point. As a result, Jesus begins to correct the Sadducees' bad theology. In Matthew's account of this same story, in Matthew 22, verse 29, Jesus says, You are wrong because you neither... Uh, because you neither understand the scriptures, nor the power of God. Can you imagine that? Somebody just looks you in the face and, and, and say, you don't know the Bible, bro. You don't even know the Bible. You don't understand it. Do you understand what, like, if, if any of us said that to one another so, so bluntly and so explicitly, we would be extremely offended. But, but Christ can say that. It's his, it's his word. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He looks at the wealthy, intelligent, successful, and influential elite class of Sadducees as they sit there in their smug attitudes and says, You don't know your Bible. They might have sat there thinking they trapped Jesus, but instead Jesus exposes them for their ignorance. 
In Luke 20, 34, Jesus informs the Sadducees that the sons of this age are given to marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Here, if you notice, Jesus, he speaks of, he speaks of two ages. He speaks of this age and that age. This age refers to this present time. That age speaks of the time of the resurrection of the dead. Quite often throughout the Bible, we see such phrases describing this age and the age to come. For instance, in, in Matthew 12, 32, Jesus says, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be, for, will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. In Mark 10, 29-30, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for the sake, uh, for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, pers with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Also, we read in Ephesians 1, 20, or, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 20, he worked in Christ when he raised him, being God the Father. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This age, that age. This present evil age and the age to come. Whenever we see the two-age dichotomy in the Bible, the present age always refers to this present day. And the age to come always refers to eternity future, which consists of eternal life, the resurrection of the dead, the return of Christ, judgment, etc. To put it plainly, we are living in the present age. And we are waiting for the age to come. So when Jesus says that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, Jesus is saying marriage is for this present age. When Jesus says that those in that age, or that the age to come, or the resurrection of the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage, he is saying that there will be no marriage in eternity future. Now, I just want to let you sit in that for a moment. Just sit in that reality and consider how that hits you. Some of you are single. You don't know the joys of being married, but you desire to be married. Some of you are newly married and you're in a honeymoon stage. Some of you have been married a long time and you've been with your spouse and it's the greatest entire thing in the entire world. Some of you are divorced and you've seen the pain of, of marriage and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in the age to come, there will be no marriage. The giving or taking of marriage. For many, eternity future consists of all things good and plenty of them. Heaven looks like all the food and drinks that we want. All the athletic abilities that we always wanted with our, with our brand new bodies. Hanging out with wild animals. 
roaming the, the streets of gold all while wearing a white robe and never sleeping and doing exactly what we want. That's eternity future. For others, eternity looks like hanging out with our old friends, children, loved ones, and spouses that had gone on to be with the Lord before us. Many think that when they go to heaven, they will be reunited with their wife. I, I understand the sentiment. I, I do. And I, I want to be, be sensitive to that. And, and the way we often seek to comfort ourselves and others by thinking of such things. And to a certain extent, if our loved ones are indeed with Jesus, friends, those of us who are in Christ will go on to see them because we will also go on to be with Jesus. However, when we go on to be with Christ, our earthly relationships will not define us the same way they do on earth. They won't. For instance, as Jesus says here in Luke 20, our spouse will not be our spouse anymore in eternity future. And that will never change. If you're like me, friends, that thought brings a small amount of earthly sadness to my heart. Am I alone in that? Anybody? Husband, that's a good... That's a good yeah. <laughs> Why? Because... I love my wife so very dearly. When I think of all the best things in my entire life, they all involve my precious bride. All of them. In this life, if I were to lose my wife, it would wreck me and bring me to my knees in pain. As I think from an earthly perspective, if the, reward, if the reward for a race well run in this life was to spend every day together with my wife forever in eternity, I would be overjoyed. I genuinely would. Yet, that is not God's plan. Friends, God has something far greater for those that are in Christ. He does. Friends, here's the thing. As much as from an earthly perspective, I look and I consider this, this idea that I will not be married to my wife in heaven, the one who I love more than anything in this world, on this earth. At the resurrection, we will not be disappointed in the slightest. Understand. Not one iota. Not one bit. It will not let us down at all. At the resurrection, we have something to look forward to that brings far more pleasure than the best, most God-glorifying earthly marriage. At the resurrection, we will not first make a beeline to our earthly spouse, children, parents, or loved ones. We won't. You might think, the first thing I'm going to go do, I'm going to go see my, 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 my kids, or my wife, or my parents, or my brothers and sisters, or friends, or so-and-so, or Noah and Abraham. And no, you won't. In that moment, dear friends, when we see his face, 
when we see his face, we will beeline it to the lamb that was slain. And it will far outshine any pain and, and, and relationship here on earth. At the resurrection, we will run to our true prize, our true husband, King Jesus. That is what awaits us, friends. That is what awaits us, church. Can we glory in knowing, friends, that Jesus is better than all the good things in this life that we seek with all of our hearts? Can we glory in that for a moment? Jesus is better than a wife. Jesus is better than money and influence. Jesus is better than the lack of pain that we will see in heaven. Jesus is better than all of it. Our prize is Jesus. Come rejoice now, oh my soul, for his love is my reward. Tears are gone. Hope is found. Christ is mine forevermore. Isn't that good news? And so, friends, in the midst of whatever you're dealing with right now, pain, heartache, suffering, joy, good times, bad times, know that if you are in Christ, you have such an amazing, glorious, fulfilling, joyful eternity ahead of you. You have a God who has given you the best gift that he could possibly give you, his son, Jesus. As we continue to consider Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees, the first thing that he basically says is this. He says, you guys totally do not understand the resurrection. You don't get it. In fact, you're horribly misrepresenting it. There won't even, there won't even be marriage after the resurrection. Not only, not only that, but Jesus gives them a reason why there won't be marriage after the resurrection. In verses 35 through 36, Jesus says, Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why? For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. How does that work, friends? We'll never die. They cannot die anymore. Well, for that, I would point you to Romans chapter 6. You can, you can turn there. I'll, I'll take a, a detour there for a moment. Romans 6 verses 3 through 11. We see this incredible news where Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that those, who, those, of, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have trusted in Christ, those of us who have trusted in his life and death and resurrection to make payment for our sin, those, those of us who have identified in his death, that's what being baptized into Christ is, we are, we are identifying with Christ. If we have been baptized into Christ, you, we have been baptized into his death. That, that effectively we identify with Christ as he died. We are in Christ, okay? We've been baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So as Christ died, as Christ was put to death, we were in Christ, therefore we are identifying with his death. We are in his death. Why? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So just as Christ died, we identify with Christ in his death, we are in Christ. We are baptized into, into his death. So baptized into his life. We, we are raised with Christ. Just as Christ 
physically, bodily, and literally was dead. And physically, bodily, and literally rose from the grave. Dear friends, like Christ, because we are in Christ, we have been raised to walk in newness of life. Paul goes on, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Do you understand? Because we are in Christ, as Christ lives and will never die again, dear friends, we will live forever. Amen. You get that. We are in Christ. Our physical bodies will indeed die, but we will still live. At the resurrection, we will live forever and never die again. How is this relevant to marriage? How is this relevant? Well, we, we know from Scripture that one of the primary purposes of marriage is to have children. Again, we know that God's intent for mankind is to fill the earth with image bearers. God's plan to do that has been for married couples to procreate and deliver new humans into the world as other humans die. In order to fulfill the creation mandate of filling the earth and subduing it, humans must make more babies because of sin every human dies. If procreation is one of the most important and vital reasons God gave us marriage, it stands to reason that we will no longer need marriage at the resurrection. Why? Because we will no longer need to procreate. Why? Because all those who are living at the resurrection of the dead will never, ever, ever die again. There is something particularly beautiful to think about when considering the resurrection. In this present age, as parents all over the world fill this earth with people, they're filling it with people, most of whom will not know the Lord. Think about that. This, this earth is primarily full of people who likely will not know the Lord. They bring babies into this world, and many will be raised to hate God. Many will be raised to love God. But the earth is full of sheep and goats. The earth is full of wheat and tares. Those who, who will experience God's saving grace and those who will not experience God's saving grace. However, when we think about the resurrection, I've typically thought about a return to the Garden of Eden. Have you thought about that? Is that what you think about? Can you imagine it? Can you imagine it for a moment? Can you see it? Can you imagine what it was like for Adam and Eve in contrast to this present world? 
All of creation was perfect and sinless. All of creation was under submission to God. At that moment, every being on earth had something in common. They were walking. They were walking with God. Yet, the resurrection will never in our wildest dreams or imagination ever compare to Eden. No, friends, what awaits us is far more glorious, joyful, and Christ-exalting than Eden could ever be. Friends, Eden was good. Eden was good. The sinless life was good. The walking with God was good. The fruit from the tree of life was good. But do you know what's better? Do you know what's better than that? Do you know what's better than Eden? I'll tell you what's better. The sinless life. The walking with God. The eating forever from the tree of life. And doing this for all of eternity. Knowing this. That the only reason we can partake of such a glorious life is because of Christ's work on the cross for which we will praise him forever and ever. That's better than Eden, friends. Every resurrected person walking on this earth for all of eternity will have Christ's name written on their forehead. Every resurrection body will be clothed with a robe that was washed in the blood of the Lamb. The lack of tears will be more joyful because we have known what it means to cry. The lack of mourning will, be great, will bring great excitement because we have known such deep suffering. The lack of pain will bring shouts of freedom because our earthly bodies have brought such agony. The tree of life with its 12 types of fruit will taste all the more glorious because we have eaten of the fruit of this fallen world. The perpetual light of the Lord will shine so much brighter because we have lived in such darkness and in light of such glorious truths and rich blessings. We will praise Christ for all of eternity because it was Jesus Christ who paid it all and gave that all for us through no merit of our own. Oh, the contrast will, sh will shine so much brighter, so much more gloriously in eternity future than it ever did in Eden. Yes, friends, we will live forever. And as Jesus told the Sadducees, we are equal to the angels. Now, Jesus doesn't mean that we are of equal value as the angels. The book of Hebrews explicitly makes the point that we are, we are of infinitely greater value than the angels. We are equal. This is what Jesus is getting at. We are equal in the sense that like the angels, we will never die again, but we will be with God forever. Why? Because as Jesus said, we are sons of God. We are sons of the resurrection. We are heirs of God. We are part of his family. We will live and rule and reign with him forever and nothing can change that fact. Now, it, it bears repeating that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection because they only believed that the Torah was authoritative and didn't see any evidence of the resurrection in the Torah. 
As Jesus points out, apparently the Sadducees didn't look close enough. In his, in his continued discussion with the Sadducees, Jesus points to Exodus 3 and his defense of the doctrine of the resurrection. He brings to mind a, a very familiar passage of Scripture for the Sadducees to consider. We might recall that in Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. At that moment, God introduces himself to Moses as what? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus gives the Sadducees a little grammar lesson here. Jesus brings up this verse to point out that God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living, for all live to him. In other words, God isn't the former God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God isn't the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob used to worship. God is the current God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Parsing, parsing it out more explicitly for us to understand, we can say that, that God is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they still worship God because they live with God. They walk with God today at this very moment. He is their God. They are his people. That's what God is saying. As written in Exodus chapter 3. They walk with God. They live to God. They are his people. He is their God. Not only that, but Yahweh is the God of the early church fathers. Origen, Athanasius, Irenaeus, and Augustine. Why? Because they live to God. Why stop there? Yahweh is, is the God of Thomas Aquinas. Why? Because he lives to God. Yahweh is the God to John Calvin, Martin Luther, William Tyndale, Ulrich, Zv Ulrich Zwingli. Why? Because they live to God. Y Yahweh is, is the God of Thomas Watson, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, William Perkins, and Richard Sibbs. Why? Why? Because they live to God. And, and, and Yahweh is the God of Lottie Moon, Fanny Crosby, and Corey Tinboom. Why? Because they live to God. Yahweh is the God of Charles Spurgeon, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, and Billy Graham. Why? Because they live to God. And also, Yahweh is the God of Roger Carr and Don Carver and Ben Statton and Tony Menard and Debbie Griffith. Why? Because they live to God. Why? Because they are in Christ. In light of these glorious truths, friends, how will we live? How will we live? Will we stay the same? How will we respond? How should we respond? I can tell you how some men responded. In verse 39, some of the scribes spoke up and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. In other words, 
Jesus, we cognitively recognize that what you are saying is technically correct. Well done. Ironically, these same scribes are the ones that have been trying to get Jesus arrested all this time. They might agree with Jesus on his theological position on the resurrection, but they have no intent of following Jesus or letting this doctrine melt their heart of stone. I pray that it's not you this morning. I pray that you wouldn't just give such truth and amen and walk away the same way that you walked in. For the hurting and the broken, may the good news of the resurrection bring hope this morning. For the, for the depressed and anxious this morning, may the good news of the resurrection bring joy. For the haughty and the proud, may the good news of the resurrection bring repentance. For the apathetic and discouraged, may the good news of the res resurrection ignite your heart with passion for Jesus. In closing, friends, we, we can respond like the scribes did to the news of the resurrection. We can do that. And in many times we do. Give an amen and walk away. You are right, teacher. Brian, you're right in what you said about the resurrection this morning. Or we can respond like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that Jesus happened to mention in this text. The reality of the resurrection wasn't simply a theological concept for, this, for these men. Their eschatological beliefs spurred them on to faithfulness throughout their lives. It spurred them on to follow God and obey him. It is brothers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were mentioned for their faith in Hebrews 11. You know the passage. You've read it. The Hall of Faith. And you might sit here and you, and you might think, well, it wasn't the resurrection that spurred them on. It was modern blessings in the promised land that spurred them on. Well, friends, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What was it that spurred the men in Hebrews 11 on? It was an eschatological hope of what God would do. That they would be with him forever. That he would build a heavenly city. It wasn't their earthly circumstances that spurred them on. It wasn't friendship that spurred them on. It was the promised work of God for them that spurred them on. They understood, church, that this world was not their home. And therefore they lived for eternal matters. Community Bible Church, my, my hope for us this morning is that the eternity that awaits us will spur us on to faithfulness today. That's my hope. I pray that the resurrection that awaits us would change the way we spend our time and money. I pray it would change our pursuits 
and ambitions in this life. I pray that our excitement for the resurrection would lead us to heading out of this place and sharing the gospel with our community in an effort to bring as many people to the resurrection with us. I pray that the resurrection would result in parents that desire to disciple their children. I pray that the resurrection would encourage us to joyfully be an active and committed part of this church family in light of the fact that we will be spending eternity together. I pray that the resurrection would give us courage in the face of whatever you're dealing with in life right now. I pray that the resurrection would put everything else in our lives in its proper perspective. I pray that the resurrection would give us endurance knowing that we're almost home with our Lord. Church, let's finish well. We serve a merciful God, don't we? He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And that is us. And he is our God. Let's live like a church. Amen.